Welcome to The Change, a podcast about perimenopause for people in their 30s and 40s. I'm your host, Caitlin O'Connor, naturopathic doctor with a practice in Denver, Colorado, supporting patients with their health and hormones throughout the many phases of life. I'm happy you're here. Let's dive in. Hey, everyone. This is a hot flash where we're coming in hot with quick reviews of common topics around perimenopause. This episode, we are talking all things related to menstrual irregularity and heavy menstrual flow. So menstrual irregularities, cycles that come more frequently, less frequently, are associated with spotting or a change in bleeding patterns, both heavier and lighter, are a hallmark of perimenopause. A quick vocabulary note, I'm going to be using cycle as the word to describe the time from the beginning of one menstrual flow to another menstrual flow. Some folks refer to the actual menstrual bleed itself as a cycle, so this wording can get a bit confusing. But for the sake of this episode, the word cycle is going to be referring to the length from one bleed to the next, and I'll be using menses or bleed or menstrual flow to refer to the specific release of the uterine lining. We have chatted about this in other episodes, so if you really want to get into the details again, be sure to check out our Foundations episode, but we'll do a brief review here. An average menstrual cycle for someone not on hormone therapy, like birth control pills, consists of about three to five days of bleeding, minimal to no spotting in between, and about 24 to 31 days between bleeds. Remember that when we count the days of the menstrual cycle, the first day of menstrual flow is day one, and then we count from there. So if somebody's reporting a 25-day cycle, that means that the bleeding began on day one, and then 25 days passed before the next onset of bleeding. A common confusion is to start counting from the end of one menstrual bleed to the start of the next menstrual bleed, but this can give an inaccurate picture of cycle length. For example, if somebody has five days of bleeding and starts to bleed again 21 days later, they might report that they're having their period every 21 days, when a more accurate report would be that they're having a 26-day cycle, so the five days of menstrual bleeding plus the 21 days before the bleed started again. A little variation in cycle length is normal. People could have up to five to seven days of difference from month to month, and a lot of people will notice shorter cycles or sometimes longer cycles during times of stress, travel, or dietary change. And this doesn't necessarily mean anything is wrong. It's just a normal part of this transition process. And as long as it's not accompanied by other bothersome symptoms, there's really not anything that needs to be done about it. I do think it can be really helpful to track cycles during this phase because it can be hard to keep track of patterns and symptoms when there's so much variation I think using a paper chart or a calendar or an app, I like both the Kandara and Clue apps, can give some really good insights and also help to monitor any symptoms that may be related to hormonal shifts. It can also make things a little bit tricky if folks have relied on regular cycles to predict their ovulation for preventing pregnancy. And while pregnancy chances do decrease during this phase, they're not impossible. So be sure to consider that a regular ovulation could result in eggs being released at inopportune times. So be mindful of using a contraceptive method if and when it's needed. And finally, a quick reminder that you officially graduate to menopause once you've gone 12 months with no menstrual bleeding. Once you've passed the finish line, any return of uterine bleeding after this 12-month pause, needs to be reviewed with your healthcare provider. 
So the biggest concern I see with menstrual cycles around perimenopause is heavy bleeding because I've worked with many people who have had atypically heavy menses leading to symptoms of iron deficiency and other medical issues. However, no one had ever defined what a medically concerning amount of blood loss would be. So in a typical menstrual bleed, we expect to lose somewhere between 25 to 80 milliliters of blood. This can be hard to conceptualize. It's about 1.5 to 5 tablespoons. But again, the thing about blood loss is it can be really hard to look at amount of blood and estimate how many milliliters it is without a lot of practice. Menstrual cups come in many sizes, but typically hold between 20 to 30 milliliters. So if you wear a menstrual cup and it's getting filled up multiple times a day, you're likely having a heavier flow. Another way to quantify menstrual flow is how long it takes to fill up a pad or a tampon. But this is also tricky as pads and tampons come in a variety of sizes with a variety of capacities. A regular tampon holds about 5 milliliters of blood, or about 1 teaspoon, and a super tampon about 10 milliliters of blood, or about 2 teaspoons. So if you're using more than 8 super tampons across your entire menstrual cycle, then you have heavy bleeding. Another telltale sign is having regular episodes of leaking through or needing to wear a tampon plus a pad or having to wake up in the night to change your menstrual care products. Another thing to know is that especially during perimenopause, blood flow is not always consistent. So some folks might have a more mild to moderate flow, but then have multiple episodes of what is described as gushing or flooding, where they can release up to 250 to 500 milliliters of blood at once and will often bleed through whatever device they have in place. All of these are going to be signs of a heavy menstrual flow called menorrhagia in the medical world and definitely indicate a need for follow-up with your healthcare provider. This is going to be the result of a few factors at different phases of the perimenopausal transition. First is the higher estrogen of early perimenopause causing a thicker uterine lining with less progesterone to balance it out. This is why cycles can be shorter together but have bleeding that's longer and heavier. The second scenario is deeper in perimenopause when the cycles themselves are farther apart because we're not regularly ovulating, but that allows for more time of the uterine lining to thicken. So cycles can be more spread out, but very heavy when they do come. And both of these scenarios can result in significant iron deficiency, which I see really often and is very commonly missed in a typical medical workup. Iron deficiency is different from anemia. Anemia is the term used when folks are making less red blood cells and or their red blood cells are less concentrated with hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is the component of the red blood cell that carries oxygen, and iron is a critical building block for the structure. So when folks reach a certain critical level of iron deficiency, they can become anemic. However, people can be iron deficient and symptomatic before it impacts their red blood cells. So if the only screening test they're getting for iron deficiency is a complete blood count, or a CBC, which is a common blood test that looks at the number, size, and shape of red blood cells, they can be missing a diagnosis of iron deficiency. Fatigue is the most common symptom of iron deficiency, but we can also see hair loss, dizziness, anxiety, low mood, and headaches, especially headaches that occur primarily during the menstrual bleed. All of these can indicate that there's an issue with iron deficiency. The best marker of iron deficiency is a test called ferritin that looks at the iron stores in the body. 
If there is one message I want folks to remember from this episode, it is to test ferritin. Almost everyone who has any active menstrual bleeding should be screened, but this is especially important for folks that have heavier bleeds or have a diet lower in iron, which might include vegetarians, vegans, or just people who don't eat a lot of red meat. Ferritin can be easily ordered along with annual blood panels, but not many healthcare professionals that don't have a special interest in nutrition are necessarily going to have it on their radar, so it may be something you need to request. And it's a pretty inexpensive test. For example, my cash lab charges about $12 for it. And there are many options for self-ordering labs these days. So if you don't have insurance or if you don't have a healthcare provider that will order it from you, you can take matters into your own hands. Now, the range of normal is quite broad. Some labs will have anywhere from 10 to 250 micrograms per liter as a normal result. However, anything under 30 is likely deficient. And in my opinion, anything under 50 to 70 is suboptimal, especially for folks that are having symptoms of iron deficiency. So a lab result that comes back in the normal range does not necessarily mean there isn't an issue. You have to look at the actual numbers. And as a side note, ferritin can sometimes be temporarily high if someone is acutely ill or experiencing other causes of inflammation. We can also see high ferritin levels with a relatively common genetic variation where folks store too much iron. This is called hemochromatosis, and it can result in some significant health issues, especially after menopause when people are not bleeding on a regular basis. So if your levels are high, please make sure you're following up with your healthcare provider and doing some further investigation. You don't want to ignore high ferritin levels. Just to clarify, there is no specific symptom set that can definitively be attributed to either high or low iron stores. It really must be tested. To address iron deficiency, there are a few things to consider. First is the why. And for our purposes, we can assume it is something to do with heavy blood loss with menses. For folks losing greater than 80 mils per month, it's going to be very hard to keep iron stores up with diet alone. Other contributing causes can be lower dietary intake or issues with absorption. So step one is to slow the menstrual bleeding, as it can be very hard to overcome a deficiency when actively losing so much blood. And we're going to get to that in a moment. Step two is to shore up the iron stores, which often includes supplementation. Now, iron supplementation is tricky because you can actually get too much iron or take iron for too long and cause damage to the body with excessive iron storage. So no one should be taking iron above 80 milligrams a day without having a test showing that they need it. And folks who aren't having regular menstrual bleeds likely don't need any additional supplemental iron at all. Many vitamins marketed towards women and almost all prenatal vitamins will have iron in them. So if you're taking a multi, be sure to know if it has iron, what the dose is, and if it is appropriate for your needs. Fun fact, gummy vitamins almost never have iron or have a very low dose of iron because the possibility of iron poisoning is very real. This can be both acute, happening with one large dose, or chronic, taking higher doses than the body needs over time. Because gummies are so tasty, it is too risky to have a lot of iron in there as folks often take more than the recommended amount. So for folks that need iron, I do recommend you are monitored by someone who is well-versed in nutrition and supplementation. And you should be doing follow-up labs to ensure your response is adequate 
and that your dose is appropriate. A few quick tips from my practice. I find iron bisglycinate to be much more well-absorbed and better tolerated than the more commonly prescribed ferrous sulfate. Ferrous sulfate is a typical prescription iron and the -the over-the-counter iron that is often going to be causing constipation and stomach upset. There's also some research that dosing iron every other day is more effective than daily dosing. This probably has to do with the impact of how much our GI system will absorb when it's being continuously exposed to higher doses of iron. So I will often have folks take iron Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Sunday, especially if we're dosing on the higher end of the range. A typical starting dose of iron bisglycinate is 25 to 75 milligrams, taken with food and taken at a separate time from other minerals like calcium that can impact absorption. It can also bind to thyroid medication, so be sure to separate doses of thyroid medication and iron by at least four to six hours. Another option is iron IVs. IV iron can be really helpful if folks are having absorption issues, have very low ferritin levels, and are having such heavy bleeding that it's hard to replete levels with supplementation alone. The other awesome thing about iron IVs is that you can boost levels really quickly, within weeks, while with supplementation, it can sometimes take months to feel the effect. The downside of iron IVs are that they're tricky to access. Iron is more complicated than many other nutrient IVs, so you won't find them offered in the standalone IV clinics that offer other types of a la carte nutrient IV therapy. Iron infusions have to be given in a medical setting and are usually monitored by a hematologist versus a primary care doctor. Often patients have to really advocate to get a referral for IV iron. However, if supplementation isn't doing the trick or levels are really low or people are really feeling terrible, it can be a really worthwhile therapy for people who can access it. But the most important thing here is to slow the bleeding. Consistently losing a lot of blood on a monthly basis is not sustainable for well-being. And it really bums me out that so many folks have not been taught the parameters for appropriate blood loss. File this under the misconception that having a uterus signs you up for a lifetime of unmitigated suffering. In truth, it does not, and folks should really be aware of their options. So first, we figure out the why. While heavier menses is common secondary to the changing hormones of perimenopause, we don't just want to jump to that conclusion. When folks are having menorrhagia, again, the medical term for heavy menses, we need to do an adequate workup before we land on the most common diagnosis. The most common diagnosis is called dysfunctional uterine bleeding. Dysfunctional uterine bleeding is the diagnosis that is most commonly given to people having heavier bleeding during their perimenopausal years. But dysfunctional uterine bleeding is a diagnosis of exclusion, which means you need to exclude any other possible factors first before you land on this diagnosis. So an adequate workup for heavy menstrual cycles includes a pelvic exam, some blood tests, and an ultrasound. The pelvic exam, most likely including a pap for those who'd need one, can look to see if there's any structural issues on the cervix that might be causing bleeding and collect cells from the cervix to make sure they're healthy. Blood tests should include looking at a blood count and iron, as being iron deficient can actually make bleeding worse. A thyroid panel, as having disordered thyroid function can impact bleeding and potentially a screening for clotting disorders. Now, this is less likely in folks who have had a more typical bleeding pattern 
early in life and are just now having heavier bleeds with perimenopause. And occasionally we may want to look at ovarian hormones like estrogen, progesterone, or the hormones that talk to the ovaries from the brain like FSH and LH. Although as we've discussed on prior episodes, testing ovarian hormones is especially tricky during this phase and doesn't usually give us any actionable info. The ultrasound is very important, potentially the most important part of this workup. In order to get an adequate view of the uterus and ovaries, the ultrasound wand has to be inserted vaginally. This is called a transvaginal ultrasound versus other forms of ultrasounds where the wand is applied outside the body. This is important to know so folks can be mentally prepared for this type of exam. The transvaginal ultrasound is really important as it can look at the lining of the uterus and make sure everything looks healthy there, as well as looking for structural changes such as fibroids that can be contributing to the bleeding. The fluctuating hormone levels of perimenopause can often lead to rapid fibroid growth. Fibroids themselves are most often benign growths, meaning that they don't spread throughout the body or cause issues besides the issues that come with their physical structure. For example, they can put pressure on the bladder or intestines, causing issues with urination or bloating or constipation. But depending on their size and placement, they can also make it harder for the uterine lining to effectively shed and for the uterine muscles to contract and modulate the amount of blood loss. For some people, depending on the size and placement of the fibroids, they may need to have them removed in order to effectively address heavy menses. For the majority of folks, about 80%, this workup will rule out any other underlying causes of heavy menstrual flow, and the official diagnosis will be dysfunctional uterine bleeding, which essentially means there's not a structural issue or a pathology to explain the bleeding just that the uterus is not functioning in an organized and effective way, which is almost always secondary to the shifting hormones of perimenopause. So what are the options for treatment? Well, there are many, and I want to emphasize that I do think treatment is needed. Even if this isn't an acute medical issue and folks are able to stave off overt iron deficiency, heavy bleeding takes a toll on quality of life and overall well-being. A monthly hemorrhage is nothing to play around with. And to start, I want to acknowledge that heavy menses is one of the trickiest symptoms to manage during perimenopause, and one that often requires a team approach, combining lifestyle, botanical, nutrition, and pharmacologic options. On the lifestyle side, all the basics apply. Getting good sleep, moderating alcohol intake, working on any issues with blood sugar, getting a lot of dietary fiber and pooping every day to help the body metabolize that extra estrogen, all of that helps. Some folks might find that minimizing or avoiding cow dairy will make a difference, and adding anti-inflammatory spices, especially turmeric, either as an herb or a supplement, can be helpful here as well. This is all very individualized and may take some time and experimentation to see what works best for you. There are also herbal options, both Western herbal combos and Chinese herbs that can help decrease menstrual flow as well. Oftentimes, these are formulas that you take all month long, but then increase the dose on bleeding days. An individualized approach works best here, ideally working with somebody who specializes in botanical medicine, but there are some over-the-counter options available as well. Slow Flow by the company Vitanica is one example of a formula that can be helpful for some, but again, only after working with a healthcare provider and doing a full workup. Acupuncture can be great here as well, but likely would be a scenario where you have to have a regular practice of two to four sessions per month versus just a one-off or an occasional appointment. Interestingly, 
Taking ibuprofen, even if folks don't need it for pain relief, can decrease bleeding by 25% by modulating the inflammatory reaction in the lining of the uterus. Typical doses are 200 milligrams three times a day taken with food for up to five days. This can be increased to 400 milligrams as needed, especially if we're also looking to get some pain management. Another pharmaceutical that I think is underutilized is tranexamic acid. This is a new one for most folks, so I'll spell it out for you. It's T-R-A-N-E-X-A-M-I-C acid. This medication works to increase blood clotting and is in a class of medications called antifibrinolytics and is only taken during the menstrual bleed. The research shows it's very well tolerated with minimal side effects and is more effective than both ibuprofen and birth control pills. While it does work to slow uterine bleeding through increasing clotting, it does not appear to cause clots elsewhere in the body. It is most typically used for folks with clotting disorders, but actually has fairly robust research supporting its use for anyone with heavy menstrual flow. I honestly very rarely see this prescribed for folks, but after digging into it more, I think I'm going to advocate for its use, especially when folks don't respond well or have history of risk factors that might preclude them from using hormones. Now, moving on to hormonal treatment, we have natural or bioidentical progesterone, which can be really helpful here. Although typically folks are going to need a prescription oral dose versus the -the over-the-counter creams that are available. It can also take a little bit longer to see results with bioidentical progesterone versus some of the synthetic progestins we're going to be talking about next. A typical dose of bioidentical progesterone would be about 300 milligrams taken at night before bed. The main side effect is drowsiness, so it can actually be helpful for sleep, but you don't want to take it during the day. Oftentimes, folks start taking this daily, or it can be prescribed 14 to 21 days out of the month, focusing on that luteal or post-ovulatory phase of the cycle. You can read more about this approach and share this resource from the Center for Menstrual Cycle and Ovulation Research. This is the premier research institute devoted to understanding ovulatory hormones and perimenopause, run by Dr. Gerilyn Price up in Canada. Many providers don't have a lot of exposure to using natural progesterone for bleeding, so oftentimes they might need some additional resources to refer to. I'll link an article about this in the show notes so you have something to share with your healthcare provider. Progestins, which are a synthetic form of progesterone that do not have the same molecular structure but do have a very significant impact of the lining of the uterus, are the most commonly prescribed hormone for heavy menstrual bleeding. They can be taken orally to slow or stop bleeding or, more commonly, are going to be present in the hormonal IUD. These are the IUDs such as Mirena, Skyla, or Kylina. An IUD is a device that is inserted into the uterus. In the case of hormonal IUDs, they release a low level of local hormones. These hormones thin the lining of the uterus to decrease menstrual bleeding or to stop bleeding entirely. These can be great options for folks and have the bonus of providing contraception for those who need it. They also last five to seven years and require almost no user effort. Once they're in, they just kind of do their thing. However, insertion can be painful, especially for folks who have never had children, as the cervix and uterus will often be smaller and more sensitive. Talking with your provider about options for pain relief is important, as is going to a clinic with a lot of IUD experience. I always recommend Planned Parenthood. 
The majority of folks tolerate the IUD pretty well, but it can have some more systemic side effects. The biggest one I see are increased acne, some mood disturbance, and decreased libido. So just keep an eye out for any of these issues, and if you see a correlation, you can always have the IUD removed. Often folks are offered oral birth control pills for management of bleeding. And I have mixed feelings about this, especially for women over 40. Of all the things we've discussed so far, I think this approach has the highest potential for risk as far as clotting and cancer risk goes. While it is still pretty low, it's not as low as some of the other options. We can also see some of the mood, libido, and systemic side effects that come along with oral birth control. There is a new class of birth control pills specifically being marketed for perimenopausal folks that contain a bioidentical estrogen, although the progesterone is still the synthetic progestins. I am intrigued by these as I think the side effect profile might be lower and we might actually get some of the systemic benefit that comes along with estrogen therapy during perimenopause, as well as bleeding management and the bonus of birth control for those that need it. So if you're interested in the pill option, Natasia and Nextelis are the brand names. Surgical options include ablation, which use either heat or cold or lasers to damage the lining of the uterus so that it does not continue to grow. This can be a good option for folks who don't want to get pregnant or have already had their desired amount of pregnancies. It's about 85 to 90% effective at controlling menstrual flow and is a pretty minimally invasive surgery. As discussed earlier, folks with fibroids may need to have them removed if their size and placement is impacting bleeding. However, it's important to know that fibroids are really, really common. Up to 70% of people with uteruses will have fibroids, and the vast majority of those fibroids are asymptomatic. So before undergoing any procedure related to fibroids, be really clear with your provider about what symptoms they think the fibroids are causing and what the benefit of removal might be. The last option for heavy menses is hysterectomy, which is the removal of the uterus. This is my least favorite of the surgical options for a few reasons. One, it's the most invasive form of surgery. The structural change to the pelvis with uterine removal can result in a decrease in sexual responsiveness. And even when the ovaries are preserved, folks with hysterectomy often undergo earlier or more rapid onset of menopause, which comes with its own set of risks and symptoms. This is not to say that hysterectomy is never necessary or isn't the best option for some. Many folks have had very positive and successful experiences with this surgery. It is just one that requires a thorough analysis of the pros and the cons. So there we have it. A not-so-brief hot flash reviewing the most common, most concerning, and often the most underaddressed symptoms of perimenopause, heavy menstrual bleeding. I hope you have a better understanding of this topic and can use this info to get the kind of quality care that you need. Okay, this hot flash is finished. Join us next time for more quick perimenopausal takes. And be sure to leave a comment with any questions or topics you would like to see covered in future episodes.